So this is Dave Reaver. Maybe you've heard of Dave, maybe you haven't. Dave didn't actually have to go. Um, the, the exemption certificate on his nightstand gave him permission, actually, to stay away from the war and to go to seminary. But the very morning he needed to make a decision, Dave heard the news that a Marine had died over in Vietnam. Dave knew what he had to do. His young wife, just teenagers, just high school sweethearts, just married out of high school, um, deeply in love with each other, deeply devoted to each other. His young wife tried to get him to not go, but Dave knew that he had to go. He promised her before he left, though, that he'd be back, and he'd be back without so much as a scar, knowing that he had no way of guaranteeing that promise. Dave enlisted in the Navy and found himself before long finishing boot camp and off to war. It wasn't long after that in an Asian jungle that Dave was involved in a fight in a Navy boat. They were on a river and came under attack from the enemy. Dave was grasping a phosphorus grenade, about to throw it onto the land, into the enemy territory. He lifted his hand, and just as he was ready to release the grenade, an enemy sniper, with a shot intended no doubt for his head, caught Dave's hand. And just before he could release the grenade, the, hand, the, the grenade exploded six inches from his head. You can imagine the impact. Knocked him over into the water. Dave quickly began to, to try to get the, the best he could to land. He managed to get to land, crawled up to the land, and there he saw his face lying in his boot. He said he looked down and his chest was open that he could see his heart beating. And everyone figured Dave had no way to make it. Somehow, miraculously, Dave did make it. He made it as far as the Navy uh, medic ship near Japan, and there they began to work on him, trying to get him to save his life. He was burning from the inside out. 75% of his body was burned with third-degree burns. Nobody really expected him to live, but Dave did live. He said the worst day, for though, was not when he had the grenade go off, go off in the jungle. The worst day was when he made the mistake of asking one of the medics there on the ship to give him a mirror, and they did. When David looked into the mirror, what he saw was a mangled mess. What he saw was something that didn't even look like humanity. What he, was saw, what he saw was a scarred and burnt, mutilated body, and he knew at that point that his hope was gone. He had hoped to go back to his wife. He had hoped to go back to a relationship that they had started in their young teenage years, but now he had very, very little hope of that. Dave did survive. He finally made it to a hospital in Europe where his wife was allowed to come and visit with him. It was a moment of truth for Dave, and he was extremely, extremely um, um, scared about that moment. It didn't make matters any better that just before she arrived, another young lady came in and visited the soldier, the nearly dead soldier who was next to him, threw his, her ring into the bed and walked out. Dave thought, my wife's probably going to do the same thing. He knew what a freakish mess she was going to walk into. But in just a few moments, Brenda did walk into the room. She came over to the medics and they pointed her toward Dave's bed. She came to the, dead, to the bed and, and there was the attending physician and looked at the attending physician and said, that's not my husband. He said, yes, that, that is your husband. She looked at his armband and saw that it was Dave's name. If 
Finally, she gave him the courage to speak to him, and when she did, he spoke back to her, and he said to her in essential words, Brenda, I know I'm a mess. I, I know I am mangled. I know I'm not a very pretty sight. And if you need to walk away, I completely understand. She looked at Dave, and in his own words, he tells his story beautifully. He says, she looked at him, and she said, Dave, I love you. And then a life-changing moment. She leaned over and kissed his bloody, mangled face and said, I'm not going anywhere. What a thought. What a testimony of love, really. What a conveyance of a truth, of a picture that we're going to see even in greater fashion today. You see, normally we connect intuitively. We connect love with beauty. We connect glory with beauty. We connect love and glory with beautiful things. For example, the glory, the beauty of, of a sunrise. It's just a, a miraculous, wonderful, beautiful thing to look at. And that's what we connect with glory. The beauty, the glory of these spring flowers we've been enjoying here in Florida in May. And, and the glory and the beauty of the majestic ocean or the majestic mountains. It's not right for us. It's just not intuitive for us to connect beauty and glory with something that's gory and ugly. Connecting glory to pain and suffering is counterintuitive. And yet that's exactly what we're going to see today that Jesus does in his discussion and in his example of the kingdom. By now we should know that this kingdom of God we've been talking about does run counterintuitive to our thinking, counterintuitive to our behavior. It, it does, in fact, become an upside-down kingdom. We've saw, said that time and time over and over throughout the last few weeks. And now we're going to see it again. You see, it, truth of the matter, mutilated faces blown apart by phosphorus grenades don't usually connect in our thoughts with beauty and glory. And frankly, neither does the ugly scene of a cross. Today we'll see God's greatest display of beauty and glory in one of the ugliest scenes known to mankind. I'm talking about the time that Jesus would spend on a hill called Golgotha, a hill called Calvary, whichever way you want to approach it. Jesus here on this cross is going to bring to a point, a critical point, this kingdom teaching that he's been talking about, this expression of his glory is going to be seen in a fast new way, an incredible new way. In fact, today we're going to see the glory of the king, the glory of the king of this kingdom we've been talking about, the glory of the king, but we're going to see the glory of the king is revealed in the irony of the cross. The glory of the kingdom is revealed in the irony of the cross. You see, again, it's not intuitive for us to connect a cross and a crown. We tend to think of the crown as beautiful and the cross as ugly. The crown as power and the cross as submission. We think of them differently than what Jesus is going to demonstrate and show us today. We're going to be looking in Mark chapter 15. So maybe you'll want to turn around, turn into your Bible, whether that's a, you have a hard copy like I do, whether, you, whether it's on your tablet or your phone or, or wherever it is. I also have it on the screen here, but we'll walk through this incredible 15th chapter and see if we can bring a conclusion, a fitting end to our part of this series called The Cross and the Crown. Mark 15 is simultaneously one of the most shameful and wonderful chapters in the Bible. It actually has a moment where we see God at his best and, frankly, man at his worst. 
We've often quoted Danny Aiken through this series. Danny Aiken said it well. He said, what sinful man did to the Son of God can only make us weep. And what the sinless Son of God did for man could only make us shout with a joy for a Savior King who would suffer all that he suffered for you and for me. Such an irony, isn't it? Such an irony, this thing of the cross and what happened on the cross. And yet we're going to see here in this ugliest of ugly moments, this, this, this hard moment that is hard to even look upon through our eyes of flesh, we're going to see, we're going to find the glory of the king that we've been talking about. So let's unpack the text just a little bit. Beginning in verse 1, we see the king first being accused. Verse 1, Mark reports it this way. He says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Let's set the context just a moment. First, think about this. Isn't this a tricky irony? The judge of all men is now standing in Pilate's hall to be judged by men. So what's the setting? What is this morning that's spoken? Well, Jesus has been in Jerusalem. We saw a little bit of his teaching last week from the city of Jerusalem and from the Mount of Olives. He had ceased that teaching and finally went and made it to the upper room. You may recall the story. You can read Mark's account. But there in the upper room, he had a, a supper with his disciples, his closest followers. He introduced an unexpected covenant, that a new covenant that he was bringing to them. And then as he washed their feet and as they celebrated together, they decided to go out into the city, into the, uh, through the city, out to the Mount of Olives to a place that was one of their favorite places. It was called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, appropriate name, in the Hebrew meaning oil press. And Jesus was about to begin to be pressed. He was about to be pressed as an oil, as an olive is squeezed. The Garden of Gethsemane is a beautiful place on the west slope of the Mount of Olives overlooking the sea, the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus would often go there to pray. He's there now, and he's agonizing with his disciples. I wish I had time to talk more about that, about the astonishment that Jesus saw in the garden as he looked toward the moment of the cross, as he looked toward what was ahead. Even he was astonished, Mark reports, and began to sweat drops of blood. It's quite a scene. But before he's finished, and as the disciples are still gathering there, some asleep, some trying to stay awake, Judas comes, leading the Sanhedrin along with their soldiers, and they make an arrest of Jesus at that part. They take him to the house of Caiaphas, and he stands before the religious leaders of the day. They're pronouncing him guilty, and now when we come to chapter 15, he's standing in the house of Pilate. He's standing in the, pa the palace of the governor, the Antonio Fortress that overlooks the, the temple area. And there he stands before Pilate and the Jews have asked Pilate to cast sentence on him. Why? Because they want him dead. They, they don't want to just censor him. They, they don't want to just try to tell him to quit teaching what you're teaching. We'll get to what he's teaching in a moment. But they want him dead. And only, only Pilate has that power. And so as we just read, Pilate asked him, are you what? The king. Now what you're going to find is you're going to find throughout this 15th chapter, this theme of the cross 
and the crown winding its way through the entire chapter. We'd expect to see the cross, but we're also going to see a lot of talk about the crown, a lot of reference to the king. And so here they are, standing here, and Pilate asks him, are you the king? And Jesus says, well, you say, you say. First time that Jesus begins to talk about and really admit his kingly role. Now, we read on. I want to skip down to verse 16, and I think at verse 16 we begin to see more of the story. A lot happens in between. Check it out. You can read about it. You can follow it through yourself. Verse 16 says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. There you go. There's a mention again of a crown. We don't expect to see a crown on a cross, but they understood exactly what Jesus had been teaching. They knew the accusations. They knew that he'd been talking about being a king and that he was introducing a new kingdom. All of that is not lost. Put together a crown of thorns, twisted it together, put it on him. Verse 18, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes and and they led him out to crucify him. Mark mentions this humiliation process. Mark mentions this mocking of Jesus, mocking his teaching, mocking what he had claimed, mocking who he said to be. And there he is humiliated. Does it, the, the crucifixion, the execution of Rome was intended to humiliate. We shouldn't be surprised. It was a deterrent to crime. And so humiliation was part of the pain of that cross and that experience. It's noteworthy that as we move to the crucifixion, Mark doesn't talk a whole lot about details. He doesn't give us a lot of the gory details. You can find those in the other gospels. They speak freely about the horror, the horror of this Roman crucifixion. But Mark kind of gets to other points. Look at verse 21. He enters into the time of crucifixion. Mark says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, some have suggested that that Jesus fell beneath the weight of this cross, as some of the other writers say, because of the severe beating that he had taken. John talks about the fact that he was scourged, Mark leaves that out. That's very important because the scourge would rip and tear at his body, mutilating his body. Isaiah would say, the prophet said, that in his prophecy of this servant who would come, that his body would be unrecognizable. It would look like a carcass of meat. It would be something that we would not want to look at. It would not be a very pretty sight at all. And yet, here we're going to see the glory of the king as we see it in no other place. We have to think differently. We have to think upside down. We don't usually associate those things, but in this gore, we're going to find his glory. Let's read on. Let's see what he says. He says, verse 22, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. He did not take it. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It would be worth stopping here for just a moment to note to note that that Mark is going to begin to use or make reference to uh, one of the Psalms, one of the Messianic Psalms that point toward the Messiah and his suffering. And by the way, if you read that entire song, you'll begin to see how accurate it is and how 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 vividly it depicts what happens on the cross. 
Psalm 22. Now, let me just read a portion of it, just to give you an idea. And then you need to read it later, and you need to see the difference of what it makes. Psalm 22, it says, All who see me mock me. Remember, this is the psalmist looking forward to the, what's going to happen with the Messiah. All who see me mock me and hurl insults, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart was turned to wax. It was melted away within me. He continues, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What a scene. Really ugly. I I said this is one of the ugliest chapters we can find, and yet one of the most glorious Let's read on. You, can you imagine the disciples as they're here and as they're watching, as they're observing this, as they're a part of what's going on? Can you imagine what they're thinking as they're watching their rabbi, their teacher, as they're watching the one that they followed for these three years, as they watch him suffer such an atrocious, atrocious situation? Verse 25. See, so it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king the Jews. There it is again. The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it three days. You remember that from last week in his teaching? Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ... Ah, now we're referring to the Mashiach, to the Messiah. Let the Christ, the King, there it is again, the King of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They're asking for a sign. They're saying, give us a sign. If you're really the Messiah like you claim to be, clearly he claims to be, clearly this whole scene is evidence that Jesus has been stating the fact that he is the King and he is the Messiah. We've seen that throughout Mark. And now it's just being verified again. Give us a sign. If you really are the king, if you really are the Messiah, come down from the cross. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The truth of the matter is, he couldn't keep, he couldn't give them the sign they were looking for and give us the salvation that we needed. If he comes down from the cross, we don't have the salvation that we need. And then the king is completely forsaken. Look at verse 33. It says, When the sixth hour had come, it's about noon, by the way. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness over the whole, for three hours from noon till three o'clock. Darkness over the land. Matthew adds that there was a great earthquake that shook the land. Darkness, complete darkness. Some have tried to make this a potential solar eclipse, but the truth of the matter is solar eclipse don't last three hours. No, this was a work of God. And we're going to see this work of God continue. We're going to see God at work. We're going to see God at his best when man is at his worst. We're going to see what God's going to do. It's over the whole land. Verse 34 then says, At the ninth hour, about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. One of the great puzzling statements to many, one of those statements that's been debated and talked about, what did Jesus mean when he said, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Forsaken on the cross. Jesus forsaken on the cross. That's an ugly thought. It's an ugly scene. And yet we see his glory because Jesus first forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. <laughs> he was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. Honestly, we may not ever understand fully this side of heaven, what happened at that moment. We may not ever see it clearly. We might see it intellectually, but I challenge you today, let's see it in our hearts. What happened on that day? Jesus became sin. He became sin on our behalf so that he might also absorb the full wrath of God for our sins and make us right with God. Paul said it to the Corinthians. Peter said it in his letter. That he who was out sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The innocent for the guilty. Isn't it ironic? Here is the one on the cross who shouldn't be on the cross and the ones who should be on the cross are not on the cross. We see the glory of the king and the irony of the cross. Here is the glory of the king in that he is on the cross in my place, in your place. We who should be there are spared. We who should be there are not. And he who had no reason to be there was. What a thought. Jesus' experience in our judgment day right there at the cross. But then it continues. Mark says, and Jesus uttered a loud voice. A loud cry, I'm sorry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. What a way to wrap up this section. Mark gives us some great thoughts here. He gives us some incredible truth. He said at the moment that Jesus died, the veil in the temple, what veil? It's the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. It was the veil that all of those Jewish people would have known about. Even the Romans would have known about. It was a thick veil. It was not an easily ripped or torn veil. It was a thick veil. Some, some uh, Jewish traditionalists say that it would take two teams of oxen pulling against each other to tear such the veil. It was a thick veil. It had a significance that they all understood. This veil clearly and easily said very distinctly that no one can come into the presence of God. It separated Israel. It separated the people from God who dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, the holiest of all, could go into the Holy of Holies. And only he could go beyond the veil once a year on Yom Kippur. And only he could go after making proper preparation and sacrifices. And even when he did go, Jewish tradition says a rope was tied around his foot in case he was not properly prepared and died in the presence of God. His veil blocked. But at the moment that Jesus cried and gave up his last breath, Mark tells us that the temple, the veil in the temple tore in two. 
You don't have to be a Bible theologian or a scholar to figure that out, do you? God is at work. Why do we know? Notice in Mark, the details are given, right? It was torn from the top to the bottom. I think symbolizing the fact that God did the work. It wasn't men who grabbed it at the bottom and tore it. It wasn't men who put two teams of oxen to it. It was God who worked, tearing it from the top to the bottom, opening the way for mankind, opening the way for those of us who walk in darkness, opening the way for those of us who need a way, opening up the way for us to enter into the presence of God. Did it work? <laughs> sure did. Because at that moment, Mark tells us, he wants to be sure we get the impact of this. He wants to be sure we don't miss it. And maybe it's because these men have been missing it, right? How many times have we been asking through this series, how did they miss it? How did they miss it? We don't want to miss it again. No, we don't want to miss it. So just to make sure this works, here's the centurion, a Roman centurion, the one in charge of the execution. Now, I don't know anything about this centurion. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know anything about him. But if he is an executioner, I'm pretty sure he is not a guy with a particularly tender heart. He's not a guy who particularly just feels sorry for people because he watches them die on a regular basis. But it's a centurion who finally sees what the others have been missing. And he says, truly, this man is the Son of God. Truly, this man is who he said he was. Truly, this man is who he claims to be. And it's a Roman centurion who sees it. Tim Keller commented about this and I thought it was incredible. Here's what Keller said. Keller said, the beauty of Jesus in his death. Now, there's that counterintuitive thought again. The beauty, the glory of Jesus seen in his death must have flooded his, that is the centurion's, darkness with light. The darkness of his soul, the darkness that he lived in, the darkness of sin in his heart and in his life. In that darkness, he sees light. He sees the glory of Christ in his suffering, in his death. I guess I don't want to take it too far, but it's as though, it's as though he would be willing to kiss the maligned body And, and, and the ugly face of a Savior bleeding and dying for us. And that starts the end of the beginning, by the way. You, you, you can't leave off without going further and reading chapter 16, because in chapter 16, you know we talked about this at the very beginning of the series. You know what happens, right? It's the end of the beginning. It's the end of the story in one sense, but really it's the end of the beginning because the story continues and the story continues because we're here today and the story is still impacting us. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, Jewish leaders had come and gone. They had come and gone through the centuries. They followed the same pattern. One would rise up, one would claim a kingship, one would claim a case of power, and what would happen? Something would happen, he would die, and when he died, his followers left. The insurrection died with the leader. Time and time again it happened. It wasn't just the Jewish history. That was the same in all histories. Kings rise up. Kings have their power. Kings have their followers. And then they die, and the followers go their own way. But when Jesus died, something totally different happened. When Jesus died, his kingdom didn't end. It exploded. 
it exploded. And soon the 12 would become 500. And soon 500 would become 5,000. And 5,000 would become 10,000. And 10,000 would become thousands upon thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions, bringing us to today. No, 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 no. The kingdom is not done. The kingdom did not die when he died. It was the end of the beginning. And now, now, we still are part of that kingdom. Mark 16 tells us that they still didn't get it until one day, the third day, when the ladies went to the tomb and came back and reported to the followers, he's not there. He's risen. In fact, the angels gave them this message. They said, go tell the disciples and Peter. <laughs> I think that's significant, but that's another story for another time. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead of you into Galilee just as he said. Give me a king who can predict his death, burial, resurrection, and pull it off. I want to be in his kingdom. I want to be a part of his kingdom. What an incredible, incredible story. What a blending of the cross and the crown in this 15th chapter. What a wonderful thing to see the glory of Christ in the ugliness of the cross. Aren't you glad that he loves you? I'm so glad that he loves me. I guess I only have one thought to wrap this up and to wrap up this series. If there's a takeaway, a simple takeaway, I just stand amazed. I said that when I was nine years old, and I thought about the cross and the work of Christ on the cross. I thought about it when I was nine, and I couldn't help but think I stand amazed. And now, now, 54 years later, I stand amazed, even more amazed because the more I've looked at the cross over the years, the more I've looked at the maligned, ugly picture of Mark 15, the more I've seen the glory of the risen Christ. Oh, what a Savior. So today, I want to challenge you in two fronts. If you've never if you've never seen his glory, if you've never given your heart and life to Christ, if you want to explore that, if you want to explore this faith that I'm talking about, please do. I want you to understand that it all starts right here. You see, the truth of the matter is this. Religion is spelled D-O. Bill Hybels, we think, was the first that said it. Religion is spelled D-O. In other words, religion says you must do this and do this and do this in order that you might be pleasing to God and might receive eternal life. The problem with that is we never really know if we've done enough. How much do we do? But I got good news for you. Based on what we said today and what we see in Scripture, you need to understand this. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. When Christ died, Jesus cried out, It is finished. It's done. Meaning you simply come to Christ today by faith. Not trying to prove your worth. Not trying to exercise your best. But simply come as you are 
And as ugly as sin makes us and as distorted as sin keeps us, Jesus says, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for letting us see a glimpse of your glory today. Thank you for giving us this moment together. Now, before I say amen, someone's waiting to talk to you right now. Someone's waiting to chat. Someone's ready to pray. Someone's ready to help you make any decision you need to make today. Someone's ready to pray for you and whatever it is you're facing today. God bless you. We'll see you soon.